For most of the general population, the fall season brings pumpkin spice lattes and cooler weather and time in front of the fireplace. And overall, it's kind of a fun time. I mean, the holidays are there, right? Hopefully less stress, time with family, and a little bit of holidays. Oh, but there's a subpopulation out there that gets a lot of anxiety going into the fall or looking back on past falls, anxiety still revs up. Yep, that's because of the oral boards. <laughs> the oral boards for OBGYN are typically held in the fall, sometimes into the early winter every year in Dallas. ABOG is a fantastic organization. Those are all my old faculty from UT Southwestern and Parkland, and they really do care about getting everyone evidence-based and certified in OBGYN and the subspecialties. Yep, so if you're getting ready to take your oral boards, which we're into right now, I got one quick message for you. You can do this. This is what it all comes down to. All those years of undergrad, all that time in residency, and now you've collected your case list and you made it. You should be proud. But I understand, let's be real, high anxiety, okay? It's real. <laughs> but I love and I get so encouraged about the questions that I get through the Facebook page because, man, you guys are so, so prepared and you don't give yourself credit. I just received a Facebook message from Rishi, who's getting ready to take his oral boards next month. Man, that question was great. And the fact that he's thinking this deep about the perimenopausal transition and abnormal bleeding means I'm not even worried about him. He's going to do fantastic. So I want to share with you this question. And our topic for the day is... Is FSH valuable or is it helpful during the perimenopausal transition for abnormal bleeding? I mean, where, where does that fit in? I mean, if it's high, does that mean they're menopausal? And if it's low, does it mean that they're not? Remember, we're talking about specifically in the perimenopausal transition. I'm going to read you his question because it's, it's incredibly helpful. And I thought, you know, since others are getting ready to take their board, why not share this with everyone? So it's a great message. Let's start this community together. Let's learn together. Let's get everyone prepared because overall our communities and our patients will be served better by it. Ready? Let's cover Rishi's question about where does FSH fit in or does it at all in the perimenopausal transition and workup of abnormal uterine bleeding. Here we go. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to abnormal uterine bleeding, or AUB, it's kind of divided into two big boxes, right? But it really shouldn't. I mean, it's more complicated than that. In general, there's bleeding in the reproductive age, and perimenopausal bleeding actually fits on that tail end of that spectrum. Well, if they're not perimenopausal or reproductive age, then the next box is that they're menopausal. Well, the truth is there really should be three boxes. There should be the reproductive age abnormal uterine bleeding box, the perimenopausal transition, now called the menopausal transition or the MT interval, and then postmenopausal bleeding. It's that middle box that becomes problematic. 
Now, let's go even deeper than that, because perimenopause between the age of 45 and 50 is a no-brainer. But what about the age of 50 to 55? Remember that according to ACOG, the average age of menopause in North America is around 51.4 years of age. So it's possible, and that's just the median, that some women go until the age of 55. That's not unusual. So while we usually relate the menopausal transition as something under the age of 50, it very well could be over the age of 50 up to the age of 55. Remember that median age is just the median. Some are younger and some are older. Oh, let me deviate here for just a quick moment as proof that our tagline that medicine moves real fast is absolutely true. Remember, we're talking about naming or the nomenclature of abnormal uterine bleeding in reproductive age women, okay? And that includes in that tail end, the perimenopausal transition or menopausal transition. Well, that nomenclature is the palm coin system. Well, one of the lead authors of that naming system put through, through FIGO, is Mac Monroe. Proud to say, one of my mentors back in the day during my AAGL days. And he's fantastic. Well, he's back at it again. Because on August the 19th, 2022, Mac Monroe, through FIGO, has now expanded the O in palm coin. And remember, this is only for reproductive age women, which includes menopausal transition. But that O can now be subdivided into the hypo-P nomenclature. That's H-Y-P-O-P. That's a standardized way to looking at ovulatory dysfunction, or the O, in palm coin. Hypo stands for hypothalamic, pituitary, ovarian axis, and then the final P is for PCOS as a standalone metabolic condition, all right? So the hypo-P nomenclature is a new way to think about the O, or ovulatory dysfunction, in palm coin. Just a little side note. I'm going to read you Rishi's question in just a second because it's very good and it is completely getting into the mind of the oral board examiner and I love it. That's exactly the kind of question that they would ask and there's an answer for it. But you see, this is a difficulty because none of us want to miss endometrial carcinoma and mistake that for anovulatory bleed. And at the same time, we want to be super aggressive and do all of these interventions that the patient may not need. That's why between 50 and 55, things get kind of gray will enter the question about FSH. I mean, it's easy, right? I mean, if her FSH is high, then she's menopausal. And if it's not high, then she's not. No, if only it was that easy. That's not the case. So I'm going to get into Reese's question now, and then we're going to give you the evidence-based answer on where FSH fits in and circle back with a nice, concise answer in case you're asked this on the boards. Here's the question regarding FSH use in a 50 to 55-year-old patient with abnormal uterine bleeding as a guide towards management. Quote, typically, I don't obtain FSH in the perimenopausal period, but in women who are in that average age for menopause range with abnormal uterine bleeding, if the FSH is elevated, then it's likely postmenopausal in nature and not anovulatory. If there are no anatomical lesions and the EMB is normal, then it's likely atrophic endometrium and progesterone won't be a good option. If I had not gotten the FSH, then I likely would have started her on OCPs or progesterone. Doesn't this make sense, obtaining the FSH in this setting, because it could potentially guide management? End quote. All right, that's the question. Now let's tackle the answer. 
First, let's start with the ACOG, ASRM, and WHO clinical definition of menopause. Remember, this is all clinical, and lab tests aren't necessarily part of this. While they're ancillary and can be supportive, an FSH or inhibit level or any other blood test is not necessarily part of the working definition, except in one specific category, and that's in the case of suspected premature ovarian insufficiency, where FSH and estradiol levels are part of the diagnostic workup and definition. But in general, menopause is defined as, quote, the permanent cessation of menstruation that occurs after the loss of ovarian activity. By definition, menopause cannot be determined to have occurred until one year after the last menstrual period. The average age of menopause, according to the college again, is 51.4 years of age, end quote. So first of all, that's the first answer. If the patient technically has not gone through 12 months of lack of a period of amenorrhea, then she's not in menopause and it can be assumed that she's undergoing the perimenopausal transition. Now, that doesn't mean that you just go straight to one treatment. It still requires the appropriate workup in the palm coin system. So it still requires an ultrasound, still requires a look for thyroid abnormalities if necessary, possible infections for endometritis, and it still requires a search for endometrial pathology. So the question is legit, and the question is right. If I've done the ultrasound and there's no structural issues and the EMB is normal, does FSH help? Let's hang out here with this issue of FSH during the menopausal transition. Remember, it used to be called perimenopause. It's still fine to say that. But in general, ASRM prefers MT, the menopausal transition. One of the issues during this MT, this menopausal transition, is that as inhibin levels fall, well, FSH can go up and spike very high, but it's not persistently and continuously held at that level. So one day, it may be abnormally elevated, defined as greater than 30, but the next day, it may actually be back down to normal. This is also stated and reflected in ACOG's committee opinion number 605 that has to do with primary ovarian insufficiency in adolescents and young women. Now, we're not talking about the issue in young women here. Remember, our patient and the question that Rishi had is in the 50 to 55-year-old. But the concept is still the same because it makes the case that FSH has to be persistently elevated in order for it to be a value. So never place it just on one value because it quite varies in spikes and troughs based on where you are in the ovarian cycle. According to that committee opinion on POI in adolescents and young adults, if an FSH is found to be greater than 30 to 40, then a repeat FSH is indicated in a month, even if the estradiol level is less than 50, which indicates hypoestrogenism that also should be repeated. So in general, when we're talking about premature ovarian insufficiency, not like in this case, but just making the case that FSH can vary a level greater than 30, even in the presence of hypoestrogenism, which is an estradiol less than 50, that FSH needs to be repeated. And in general, it's repeated in a month to make sure that variances are accounted for. All right, Rishi, those are two clinical pearls right off the bat. Number one, based on the book definition of menopause, if she's not gone 12 months of no period, then she's not in the postmenopausal transition in and of itself. And number two is that FSH values, if high, don't have value in and of itself. It has to be repeated and be confirmed that it's elevated in general greater than 30 to make the case for 
failed ovarian status, in other words, for a lack of ovarian reserve. FSH is more helpful in that diagnosis of postmenopausal bleeding. When the patient has gone 12 months of amenorrhea and then restarts bleeding, by definition, that's postmenopausal bleed. And even there, an FSH can be done. It's, it's good information, but it doesn't make the case by itself because it's a clinical diagnosis. Here's how this conversation would go. Look, ma'am, I understand that you are 52 years of age, you've had no periods in a year, and now you've started to bleed again, and you're also having some hot flashes or vaginal dryness or what have you. That by itself, before we even examine you or do any blood work, that definition based on your age and symptoms and lack of a period for a year and now recurrence of a bleed, that definition is postmenopausal bleeding, and the evaluation is X, Y, or Z. Let's talk about estrogen in this menopausal transition. We're going to get into the work up here in just a minute and answer Rishi's question, but I want to lay down this foundation first because initially bleeding in the perimenopausal or menopausal transition is actually anovulatory marked by high estrogen levels that are non-cyclical. All right. So high tonic estrogen levels. Got it. But as the menopausal transition progresses and ovarian reserve decreases, estradiol levels begin to decrease. Again, that's a board question. So if you're ever asked, explain to me what the estrogen levels do, the estradiol levels do in the menopausal transition. Well, the answer is, well, does a little bit of everything. <laughs> Initially, as cycles are anovulatory, there's a tonic increase in estradiol levels that puts the patient at risk of endometrial hyperplasia, or now obviously called endometrial intrapathelial neoplasia. However, as the menopausal transition progresses and as granulosa cells gradually decrease, there's a gradual reduction in serum estradiol. So in the menopausal transition, estrogen is high tonically, but then decreases, and that's why you get the vasomotor symptoms and vaginal dryness. And it's that hallmark of the menopausal transition of low estrogen, but initially, it's high estrogen. Now we've covered the definition of menopause and the menopausal transition. We've tackled FSH variants and even estradiol levels. So what's the answer? Is FSH helpful in the perimenopausal transition in the patient over 50? Well, the short answer is it's probably not helpful. But Rishi answered his own question within his question. Remember, he stated if the uterus has anatomically normal features and the EMB is negative, then he would likely would have given her birth control pills. And that's totally fine. That's the correct thing to do. But whether to use birth control pills or progesterone only really depends on where they're at in that cycle. Remember, if they're early on in this menopausal transition, meaning, look, my periods were normal and now they're kind of out of whack. I'm starting to get a little bit of hot flashes. If you're assuming that it's within the early part of the MT and there's no real test for that, it's all historical, then you can actually give them continuous or high dose progestin because remember that first part is marked by high estrogen levels, and that will help atrophy the lining. If, however, they're closer to the tail end of the menopausal transition, she says, look, I've been having this for a year. It's really driving me nuts. My periods are skips and delays, and it's completely unpredictable, and I'm getting hot flashes. Then it's totally fair to offer an estrogen progestin product together like birth control pills. Birth control pills also have the advantage in this setting of protecting the patient against conception. Remember, as those FSH levels are spikes and troughs, they can still ovulate. And those pregnancy outcomes are obviously not good with a high rate of miscarriage and other complications. So not only do you get good contraception with a combination product, but you also help ease any menopausal low estrogen symptoms by the addition of estrogen as a medication. 
Rishi already had great points in there. Remember, look for anatomical issues, both ovarian or uterine, and then look for tissue changes within the cavity. Those are great, but also vital and is part of that EMB assessment is what is that endometrial stripe? Remember, endometrial stripe in menopause, not perimenopause, but specifically in menopause, an endometrial stripe greater than four millimeters is considered concerning. And if the EMB is negative, but the patient has recurrent symptoms, that patient qualifies for hysteroscopy since an EMB may miss focal lesions. But of course, that endometrial cutoff is only for postmenopause, and there's no abnormal cutoff in the perimenopausal transition. So I want to be very clear, that's only for menopausal issues. Now, if you're concerned about an endometrial lesion that potentially is missed by the EMB and hysteroscopy is just something you don't want to pursue right away, remember that there is a referee and that's saline infusion ultrasound. It's great to look for focal lesions, so don't forget that when it's necessary as part of your workup tool in your armamentarium. So as we get to the end of this, let's wrap up this question. So the treatment, whether to give OCPs or progestin, really depends also not just on how anatomically the uterus appears and that the EMB is normal, but what is that stripe? Now, I'm not talking about necessarily about an endometrial thickness, because remember, that's only established in menopause. We've already discussed that. But if the endometrial stripe is thinner, then yes, an atrophic issue may be happening, and it's totally acceptable to give OCPs by itself. If, however, the endometrial stripe is more normal appearing, notice I didn't say thick, just normal appearing because she's not in menopause yet, then a progestin agent by itself can be used, either continuous high-dose progestin therapy in the form of a pill or even Nexplanon or a progestin-releasing intrauterine system is allowed. All right, Rishi, as we get ready to wrap this up, let's give you an example of how this answer would sound like. Well, in the patient with abnormal bleeding in the perimenopausal interval, now called the menopausal transition, or MT, that still fits into the box, the diagnostic workup of reproductive age abnormal uterine bleeding. If, however, the patient had gone 12 months and now was experiencing new onset bleeding, then I would diagnose her as postmenopausal bleeding. And my first concern in that case would be the exclusion of an endometrial malignancy. However, in the perimenopausal transition, in the menopausal transition interval, the MT period, then I would treat the patient based on the patient's symptoms, pattern of bleeding, including ultrasound findings, EMB results, and the overall look of the endometrial stripe. And based on that evaluation, I would either give her oral contraceptive pills to also ease vasomotor symptoms and provide contraception. And if I feel that the patient is more anovulatory, then perhaps I would treat her with a high-dose progestational agent to protect her against endometrial hyperplasia. So the patient's therapeutic intervention will be based primarily on her symptoms, on the timing of the abnormal bleeding, and on the findings of ultrasound and the histology of the EMB. However, I would not use FSH because it's too variable in this interval and probably would not provide any clinical value. All right, Rishi, I hope that helps. I'm telling you, the fact that you're thinking this complex about this real clinical situation means I'm not worried about you at all. That's exactly what's expected from you on the oral boards. Go beyond the ground level and go deep down into the roots and try to figure out the why, the concepts behind the answer. So great job. It's a great clinical question with great insights, and I wish you the best on your oral boards. And for the rest of you all, I wish you all the best as well, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. 